0: Hi everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, our podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, a global merchant and investment bank. Today, we present our 2021 outlook. In what has become an annual feature, Liontree CEO RA Borkoff and public markets leader Leslie Mallon discuss their expectations for the new year, reflecting on the insights from REA's year-end letter, which you can read in the link in our show notes. Tune in to hear why RA predicts the bull recession, as he calls it, of 2020 will lead to a renewed, even frenetic amount of activity in this coming year. To listen to other Kindred Media shows or receive our daily Take a Break newsletter, be sure to head to the link in our show notes. Now let's hear from Tree CEO ria Borkoff and our Capital Markets leader, Leslie Mallon.
1: Hi, Aryeh. <laughs> Leslie. <laughs> Great to be sitting here with you face-to-face.
2: Socially distant, still?
1: We are, yes. But um, really good to be sitting here with you. And you seem in... Very good spirits, as usual.
2: Thank you. Good to be here with you as well, Leslie.
1: It's obviously been a very trying year, needless to say, a lot of pain throughout the world. And the title of your year-end letter, Leaving It All Behind, is very fitting. But at the same time, you talk about this concept of moving forward to extraordinary. And at the start of this new year, at least we see someone at the end of the tunnel here um, with the vaccine And as a silver lining, this crisis has really bonded the world in many ways and brought levels of business transformation that we would not have seen, at least at this magnitude, in this short amount of time. So I really look forward to learning and talking to you a little bit more about how you see 2021 unfolding. If it works for you, I'd love to start talking a little bit more about the Lion Tree perspective and the impact of the crisis on Lion Tree, And then we can move into some questions about perspectives on the markets and sector themes as we look ahead.
2: It's interesting you say forward to extraordinary because you could read it that way or you could read it forward to extraordinary. True. <laughs> Hopefully it's extraordinary, but it certainly uh, will not be ordinary. The original way of saying forward to extraordinary in juxtaposition to back to normal was, if you remember, way back a year ago or close to a year ago in March, when everyone started dispersing to remote working environments, including us at the firm, it started off as being a two-week hiatus. We're only going to go away for two weeks. I remember. And then maybe another two weeks. And the feeling of a temporary work-from-home scenario had embedded in it a sense we're going to be going back to normal fairly soon. And you start to move into the middle of the ocean slowly. And once you realize that the side of the ocean you came from is as far away as where you need to get to, you no longer look back to normal. You look forward to something else. And that is where that concept started in my mind. Because once you detach yourself from what was... You must leave it behind. And you have no choice but to look forward to whatever it is. Hopefully it's extraordinary, but it just is not backwards. It's forwards. And what else do you have a choice to do but look forward in life? And so once you own that, and have to jump in the water and jump in the pool, the same metaphor here, then you have to make for yourself a future. And we have to do that for the firm in 2020 for the balance of the year. And have to make that for yourselves and for the industry, uh, for our clients, as we look forward through this new year in 2021.
1: I'll never read that phrase the same now now that you mentioned that. But how would you say this pandemic has changed the way the business will run operationally looking ahead? And how do you see the company or how have you reprioritized perhaps some of your strategic thinking as you look forward?
2: A couple of things. First of all, when there's a shock or a trauma or something that is a black swan, which means something that's unpredictable, you right away go back to basics. What's important in life? What are your priorities? It's inevitable. You end up losing that perspective as time goes on, unfortunately. But right away, you go back to basics. So is your health intact? Thankfully, yes. Are your loved ones' health intact? Your family, your company? There was a sense at the beginning of this crisis, that the line should may not survive the year. I mean, I didn't let other people feel that, but that was certainly my responsibility to understand that and get on top of that dynamic. But my responsibility was to make sure that everyone felt safe and secure and healthy. But it's kind of like a put-your-mask-on-first phenomenon, right? You put your mask on first, make sure you're fine, then your family, or your loved one next to you, and then everyone else. And so only when you're secure yourself can you be there for others. And that's the right way to go. If you're not foundationally strong, it's really hard to be there for others. So I think really making sure that the foundation was strong was the first order of business for the firm. Is the liquidity intact? Can we survive the year? How much business continuity do we have? You know, What is it like? And can we keep our people intact? And what decisions are you going to make? And then it's also about how are you going to act? And I started saying to myself, you have to start judging yourself in two ways. One is how we are dealing with the moment at hand in the crisis and then how inevitably when the crisis is over we look back at the person that dealt with the crisis and is there a difference between those two people and you better try every day to narrow that gap because what happens if you right away said okay we need to get rid of everybody and boost liquidity and tighten up to a very small team and make sure we're okay and all of a sudden the crisis over the next day say oh why do I do that I just lost everything I just built so then inevitably you creep back into making decisions that are reasonable but not biased to being overly conservative. That also goes to locations. So do we pick up and leave our headquarters and our base? And a lot of people have moved around the country. And I respect that nimbleness and the dynamic of working from anywhere is very much upon us. But it doesn't mean that you have to locate somewhere else. There's a difference between working from home And working from anywhere. I've always subscribed to working from anywhere. And I still will. And the firm will do more of that. And I think that just speaks to the adaptability of the moment and our people. And then I think you go into this concept of redefining subtraction as addition. If you don't have the walls of an office that define your space, then your space could be more expansive. So if we're not in the New York office and everyone's in different places then that maybe seem limiting, but it also may be expansive. Then why don't we call clients around the world then? Why should we only be talking to people in one geographic area? We cover an industry theme and segment that's called the digital economy or the communications or media areas of the world. Those thematics apply everywhere. So unlock ourselves, untether ourselves, and let's not have to worry about building offices. Let's just build our connectivity. And I think those kinds of things and those, and those thoughts went through my mind all during 2020. And I want to apply those into the firm structure and strategy in 21 and beyond.
1: Do you feel that this pandemic and this crisis has or will propel you to pursue other business areas that you were not considering before? And if you think the next three to five years out, how do you see Liontree's business mix shifting?
2: Look, I think when I say leave it all behind, There are certain things you just have to cut off. So a crisis has a toolkit. And I think certain tools should be left in the box of the crisis because we're going to need it for another crisis whenever it happens. Hopefully it never happens, but it will. And we want to leave those tools in the toolbox and not take it with us. Leave it behind. And then just get on to business as normal. Let's get on to doing our job. Let's get on to building the company the way we're supposed to build the company and not take too much from a pandemic year and think that that is going to be the thread by which we are carried forward. Of course, a greater level of priority, holding our community and our people that we care about tighter, that's intact. Great. Let's deepen those relationships. But I, I think we need to now really just leap forward because the industry is moving, the markets are moving, the fundamental strengths of the economic rebound is upon us and will lead to the first half of this year having tremendous growth, especially in comparison to last year this time. And job growth will come back. Some of it will be structural and disadvantaged, some versus the whole. And we have to be worried about that societally. But I think from a business landscape perspective, we're on our way back. And I think that everything is available to us, so we have to get busy.
1: Right, right. And touching on the financial markets, obviously 2020 was a pretty amazing year, especially for tech and growth, NASDAQ up you know, over 40%. And I don't think anyone would have anticipated that if you had told them we're facing potential global health crisis, then having a change in administration with the election later on the year as well, not to really derail the market in any way. So you do sound somewhat bullish now looking to 2021, especially in the first half of this year. So it would be great to hear some more perspectives on what gives you that confidence as you think about at least the start of next year.
2: Yeah, I called 2020 a bull recession because it wasn't supposed to be a strong market environment because it was a painful year for many people and a health pandemic and a crisis. And also a level of joblessness we haven't seen in a long time, but it was the shortest recession on record since 1929. We bounced back very quickly, and the markets certainly look forward And I think part of that is because the market wrote off 2020 from a fundamental perspective and looked into 21 and 22. And now the question is, if you look out in 2022, a year ahead of where we are now, and look at the numbers for the companies that we all look at and all cover, are those numbers going to be different than they were projected to be pre-pandemic or not? It's very possible that they're going to be the same. So if you look out in 2022 and look at the fundamentals of these companies and the numbers and say they're the same as they were before, then you have to realize that just we went through a very difficult 18-month to 24-month period, but we ended up in the right place. And so you cannot get paralyzed by it. You must play forward. And I think that's what the market is saying. The market is saying, um, yes, it's difficult, but the growth is there. There are no structural impediments. Frankly, the political environment has gotten a lot quieter. And you may have a period of calm, at least for a year before the midterm elections come and the next presidential elections around the corner. You have uh, low interest rates for a very long time. You have trade deals that have already been done and we'll benefit from for a while. Hopefully, the EU and the UK will come across the finish line as well. And then you have a period of benign inflation and you effectively have and growth com-
1: stimulus as well.
2: Stimulus yes, yeah. coming out. And I think you'd have uh, companies that are. Not in the growth category, but let's say the value or the normal companies that were left behind last year rebounding, like travel companies and live events companies or outdoor companies or even advertising, really I think coming in strong yeah. at the beginning of the year. So
1: sort of my next question is uh, you know, do we see that meaner version yeah. with some of the laggards that were um, more of the recovery trade yeah. now?
2: Yeah. Now look, the market is no question pricing a lot of this in, in advance. It doesn't mean that we're going to see stock market recovery that continues to pace with the economic rebound. Stock market's ahead of the economic rebound, no question. But the activity levels will be high. Companies going public, given the IPO market being open, the SPAC market, which we'll get to, being frenetic, the valuations being high, companies now being bolder with respect to trying new things or rebalancing their portfolios and being more acquisitive again. You have companies that are effectively going to be investing for growth. You have innovation happening in many countries around the world. You have new geographies east of the US that are finding areas of growth again and economic development. So there's a lot of activity. I think it'll be a frenetic 2021 for deal making and IPOs, and certainly every SPAC's in search of a new company. Whether investors will be patient enough to let those companies grow into their valuations over time, probably not. A lot of that has to do with the retail environment, the Robin Hoods of the world, and how much investor appetite there is in the retail marketplace. But institutional investors won't give these companies too long to grow into these high valuations. But there are new companies coming in all the time, and some of them will be much more traditional companies versus just high growth.
1: Right. You had some interesting stats in your year-end letter talking about the capital markets. There were almost 180 traditional IPOs priced June through first half of December versus 27 from January to May. But perhaps a bigger story was on the alternative public market path like SPACs, where there were 183 SPAC IPOs in 2020, again through mid-December, which is 3.3 times 2019. And there were more SPAC IPOs in 2020 versus the last five years combined. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And from where I sit, it certainly kept me very busy. <laughs> <laughs> and as an independent investment bank, we're agnostic, really, as to the path clients take to the public marketplace. And every situation is different. You know, we work with companies to help them advise on the best path for them, whether that's traditional IPO, SPAC, or even direct listing. But some market participants you know, would argue that SPAC is a fad. Do you agree with that viewpoint or would be interesting to hear your perspectives on that?
2: Well, first, Leslie, you've done a great job in this environment because I'm so happy that you're part of the firm now for a long time. But I feel like we've been waiting for this moment for a long time together because you can advise companies in a real sense and help companies that are private become public in the right way with the right set of investors and the right structure. And that role is so important. And You've been you know busier than ever in the last year, and we'll be busier even still this year. Yeah, you're right. There's a supply demand imbalance. We had a, the opposite problem in the last few years where we had effectively six stocks, the fang stocks, taking the concentration of the S and P 500 of like 30 percent of the marketplace, which is unprecedented. And so you had all of your investor clients, whether was, you know BlackRock, Wellington, Fidelity, and so on, waking up every morning saying, "Should we buy more Facebook or less Facebook? Should we buy more?" Amazon or less Amazon. And that was a decision tree, right? I mean, it's obviously more complex than that. That's what fueled the SPAC race, saying we need more product out there. We need more companies to invest in that have growth, not just the big platform players. That's what the SPAC market has fueled by taking companies that were staying private much longer and compelling them to go public. Come into the public markets maybe sooner than you would have liked. Don't wait forever in the private markets like the last few years have been. Come public. We need more product. And we will fund it. And we will take a risk on it. Think back to last year, we did the Virgin Galactic public market offering into a SPAC. That was a very successful SPAC. Last time I checked, there was no space travel. At that time, there was even no travel to Chicago, given the pandemic. The company didn't have any revenue. But there was a lot of hope and promise for new growth companies. DraftKings was going public through a SPAC, right? At that time, there was no... Sports going on. Yet it's a sports betting company and was a high flyer. Ended up being backing into its valuation because of sports betting doing so well as it came back and it was a dominant player. Still is. But the market would take risk on the growth companies and compelling them to go public earlier. Now, like everything else in the public markets, those things go to extremes. So now we have too many companies going public too early with too high valuations that won't be able to grow into their stock prices. And then that will create the fad dynamic you talk about. It'll retrench. Or they'll have to retool what SPACs are used for. Now, one is SPACs have a maturity date. The SPAC founders and SPAC sponsors not only have to be well-known, but they have to be good deal makers. That's hopefully where we can help because we have to help SPACs get to the right deals or companies get to the right SPACs. That is a great connectivity exercise for us. And I love that dynamic. And it's not just private companies going public through SPACs. It's divisions of public companies they could have their value crystallized through a SPAC. That will be a new trend. Or it could even, and I mentioned this with some uh, fanfare recently, you could have individuals go public through SPACs. When I say that, everyone kind of laughs at me saying, <laughs> what do you mean individuals go public through SPACs? Well, we are in an individualistic society. We are in a creative society. We are in an edge society where the media companies, the creative engines are very much pushed to the community, the edge. So when I say... Um, People could go public through SPACs, and you laugh. What if I said LeBron James? LeBron James goes public. His income stream could go public. Or the Kardashians. Or Kevin Durant. Or you could have a 360 merchandising e-commerce model around a celebrity culture go public. So you may see the SPAC market test certain dynamics that you don't think about today as just a growth company. But ultimately, the market is discerning, and we'll pick the winners and losers. 2021 is not that year. 2021 is let's try many different things. It will be a busy year.
1: Right. I think there are about 200 SPAC companies still looking for targets. Yes. So, yeah, I think next year is going to be pretty active as well. How would you say all of this translates into capital allocation priorities and shareholder returns? Companies in the sector have been shoring up their liquidity repaying existing debt with cheaper credit so they have more balance sheet flexibility now into 2021 versus 2020. Do you expect to see a market increase in strategic M&A? I mean, you talked about expecting to see a strong M&A marketplace. Would you expect to see you know some real strategic M&A or will we see higher levels of shareholder returns start to come back? What is your sense given the client dialogues that you're having? Well,
2: first of all, what's happened in 2020 while we've all been remote? is we've all gotten our ducks in a row or our houses in order. Household savings have gone through the roof. People haven't been spending money on travel or a lot of other things. There's been a lot of pent-up savings that will be deployed into the environment and to the economy. That's positive. Companies have become much more efficient. They've cut a lot of costs. So it'll be a rebound with a lot more scale efficiency and operating leverage than people have expected on the way down before on on another cycle. So I think there's a much healthier foundational element on the way back up, than people are anticipating. I think that there are going to be uses of capital that will have to be strategic for growth, that will yield you know, M&A, but it has to be the right M&A at the end of the day. It has to be um, rescaling industries that need concentration and scale efficiencies to be competitive with big platforms. A lot of that is in media, sports, gaming, and it also be in getting into diversified areas that have verticals, into new communities, for example, the edge. I really believe that we're moving away from the center, just like we have in the political cycle, but we're doing the same thing in media and other forms of the creative communities. This is a constellation of communities, you're getting deeper into different marketplaces. We've been focused on the art community or in areas of uh, news or food or content creation or energy or agribusiness. There are communities that have new strategies that play to the edge. And with that comes infrastructure migrating to the edge as well. Our whole infrastructure that we have in this country and in the world is designed for human-to-human interaction. That is a thing of the past. We're now into machine interaction, right? Internet of Things. It's not just AI and robots walking around. It's Internet of Things. It's devices, connected devices. Lots of data comes with that migration. And the infrastructure that is centered around the broadband infrastructure in the country will be moving closer to the edge devices. And that will play into a lot more cloud and quantum and other forms of build-outs in the infrastructure space. So things are migrating to the edge. I think all that will lead to investment, deal flow, new public offerings, et cetera. I don't see a lot of stock buybacks and return of capital as much as uh, investment uh, into growth and innovation.
1: Okay. So how does the change in political leadership Factor into that view, you know, as it relates to, you know, again, this scenario of more MA, more strategic MA, will it be harder to get done or easier.
2: Yeah. Well, as we sit here today, we're looking at a um, divided political landscape where not only the country divided, but most important, at this point, we have a Democratic House and a Democratic White House with a Republican Senate, I believe. <laughs> and I think that will be comforting to the business environment overall when it comes to massive changes in the political landscape affecting anything. And I think we all deserve kind of a year or so of quiet in the political front. That being said, I also think, irrespective of the quote-unquote gridlock in Washington, I think that there will be more of an effort to work together to create things like stimulus, which is obviously first and foremost important to the economic rebound. I don't think we're going to see a lot of risk in structural areas that are detrimental to the economy, even in taxation-related areas, because I think that will be more than offset by the positive trends going on in the recovery. When it comes to um, regulation, which is a big fear in a Democratic White House or Democratic administration, that is something to be checked. I mean, I think that for some reason the Democrats don't always show the best sort of pragmatism when it comes to business and our U.S.-based companies when it comes to innovation and working together in a private-public setting, which I hope will continue in the private-public partnership. But I think deals will have to get tested. That's a big uncertain environment of what the regulatory landscape looks like, and that will have to be tested. I don't really see a lot of risk in the tech regulation front in the U.S. I do see it in the EU. The EU has gotten a lot more teeth when it comes to kind of regulating the U.S.-based tech companies that do business in Europe. But again, I don't think that's going to change the investment horizon for the big tech companies or the investment thesis. And I think that may keep the U.S. in check from regulating tech as well. But it is a point of alignment between Democrats and Republicans about being focused on tech abusing its power. And I've always said before that I think it's inevitable that tech does have breakups around it. I just don't think it happens in the next year or so.
1: Yeah, it has been a situation of more bark than bite. So we'll see if that pertains to next year as well. But on the M&A, just before we close out on that, one thing I just wanted to mention for what it's worth. When we conducted our annual client survey last year, so around this time last year, the M&A transaction most commonly cited as likely to occur in 2020 was Apple buying a film or TV studio, which obviously didn't happen. But um, Timing is everything. Timing is everything. (laughs) And we'll have to see what's cited as a potential transaction when we uh, get the results from this year's survey, which I've just gone out, so...
2: Obviously, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole like that, even with you, Leslie. But but I do think um, when you see movements where Warner Brothers have put proprietary and exclusive content on HBO Max's platform and Disney putting its content with a deep bench on the Disney Plus platform, it will put pressure on other platforms to have proprietary content. Some of that will be created organically and developed organically by Amazon, Apple, others. Paramount and ViacomCBS's case others it'll be acquired but there're only so many media companies and production companies to acquire and after that it'll put the power on the platform to then develop the best content with the most reach i always say content distribution the tension is in the way it works together not one or the other but this is a moment where i think the remaining content will be absorbed by the platform players and then from there i think the remaining platform players with the biggest reach We'll have the power.
1: So let's move on a sector themes. Yeah. First, taking a step back, in your year-end letter, when we entered 2020, you introduced the concept of scaled players in motion, meaning that incumbents need to be more nimble in response to the pressures placed on traditional business models by the tech platforms and startups, as per your words in the letter last year. Then came along the pandemic that required a whole different level of nimbleness and agility and resulted in accelerated motion. We've seen massive market share shifts towards digital across just about every industry. So the biggest question that I hear again and again is what behavioral changes and accelerated digitization themes will prove simply a pull forward? And will normalize back to pre-COVID levels and what structurally remains accelerated both positively and negatively. So I'd love to hear some thoughts on that as it relates to the sector.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great concept of the accelerant concept of the pandemic. I think it was a foreign affairs article that was sent to me last year that first started to talk about COVID as an accelerator. Now, all this has to be done with care for real health issues because You can't use a health pandemic as a business factor, really. But the period of time that we just went through did really force us all in our habits into fully being direct-to-consumer and working from home or anywhere and using the full power of the internet and e-commerce to get our devices and all of our products like packaged food delivery and And we became very accustomed to living at the edge, not in the gathering spaces as as we normally would be. I think that a lot of that is here to stay. E-commerce trends are accelerating in a big way. I think that'll be adopted in every industry. Luxury will go to e-commerce. Education is ripe for being much more digital because we were taken by surprise with a school environment that was remote. I always use the uh, analogy that if you look at the top 20 Stocks in the S&P 500, they are completely different than they were 20 years ago. But if you look at the top 20 universities, they're the same as they were 20 years ago. There's been very little disruption in the education system. And a direct-to-consumer approach, which we've now all gone through, usually leads to new entrants and new pricing models and a digital model. So we very well may see that in digital and new brands emerge as a result of it. I think that disruption is healthy. I think you'll see the same thing in healthcare. I think they see the same thing in food supply and energy. I think we'll see that overall. But I also believe that we're going to get back to gatherings. We're going to get back to ways of being together. We're going to get back to, maybe cautiously, concerts. We're going to get back to the things that we miss. When you go to the last pandemic of 1918 and you look at the activities that were done beforehand, they all resumed mm-hmm. afterwards. I think it is human behavior to come back to what you know. I just think that there'll be a shift. I just don't think it'll be absolute.
1: Well, one area that has seen structural acceleration is the traditional media sector. And it's really been pivoting at rates that we have not seen before, right? Disney Plus crushed subscriber expectations. at ts HBO Max and NBC's Peacock, both are growing at Fast Clips, Viacom, Pluto TV, Fox, 2B TV, both as well, have seen strong adoption. Disney Plus is doubling their content spend in fiscal year 2024. You talked about Warner Brothers' pretty bold move as it relates to their day and date and putting their entire film slate out in 2021, both to streaming and theaters. So, you know, bottom line, there's greater fire under the feet for traditional media to reinvent themselves around more of a direct-to-consumer model. But are they still moving too slowly? What else should they be doing? Or is it too little, too late?
2: Well, one thing I should say is that the Warner move was for 2021. It wasn't perpetual. I think they left themselves open to reverting back to a mean in 2022 or open for negotiations, so to speak. I also think it has to do with cashless streams. right? Let's see if it works. Because you can't be in permanent investing mode. You can't be bold forever. The boldness has to pay off. And it's also a matter of whether the creative community will respond to you. And obviously there was a lot of backlash in Hollywood with respect to the HBO move. While Disney really was doing it in a much more pro-creative way and I think was more balanced about it. I think everyone will find their footing. I mean, this was a shock we just went through, right? So I think there'll be a reversion to the mean in some ways, but the models are shifting for sure. One competes with the other, and it's a global marketplace. But I think that video streaming, that landscape is pretty set right now. And the content is great. I certainly watched and binge a lot more content than I've ever had before or probably ever will during 2020 because of the pandemic. But I'm going to replace some of that with other forms of media and leisure as we move forward. So it can't be that all this content investment is going to be uh, used the same way in 2021, 2022 as it was before. There's going to be other things going on in the world once people get outside again, at least in the second half of 2021.
1: Right. And as you also think about the video streaming landscape as it relates to, say, the distributors, those folks in the distributions like Roku, Apple TV, Comcast X1, Amazon Fire. How do you see that balance of power between Mm -hmm. these new platform distributors and the suppliers of content?
2: Yeah, I'm a big believer in the connected devices like a Roku having a lot of power because that is a different vantage point, just like the owners of the mobile devices having a leverage point to get into payments and content ownership, et cetera, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. It's all about the ownership of the customer. Whoever owns the consumer will be the winner. And whoever owns many of the consumers will be the ultimate winner. After that, it's what products and services are you constantly offering that are differentiated that will allow you to have pricing power. And that's not necessarily all in video. That will increasingly be in audio. I think you'll see some of these platform players get into audio, not just video as a complementary service, and gaming, and other forms of services. You have to stay with the consumer in order to grow with the consumer and to grow the price points.
1: Speaking of video gaming and audio, in your letter you talk about the interactive entertainment metaverse. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that is?
2: Well, people think of gaming as an application or an activity that a lot of times your children play with. But even adults, I mean, gaming, obviously, we've talked about as a mass media activity. But it's not necessarily just an activity. It is a universe. It is a metaverse. I say Fortnite, which we saw in the pandemic, one of the things that really piqued my interest is that Fortnite had a concert from Travis Scott in the Fortnite ecosystem.
1: My kids saw that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And that opened my eyes to it. Because if you think about gaming as the new internet, or Fortnite as the new internet, Then that is a different universe that we're going to start living in versus the internet that we've been living in. And then what's to say that you wouldn't see a movie premiere? Let's say the Bond premiere happens in Fortnite instead. As long as the pricing models and the audience is there, then you'll have all the different media and consumer and commerce activities that we engage in on the internet and other areas in the Fortnite or gaming ecosystem. And that's the metaverse. Your perspective will shift from what we've just got accustomed to over the last 20-plus years of our life, into the next 20-plus years of our life. And it's not a console or a content-driven activity. It is a new universe. And I think that's a new ac- ecosystem that is emerging that incorporates e-commerce, that incorporates all forms of media, that incorporates activities. And I don't think it's just for children.
1: Do you think that other interactive entertainment platforms will be able to build out to the same degree as Fortnite has? Will we see the same thing from Activision, EA? Yep.
2: Yeah. I think the best place players are ultimately the ones that have the consumers, right? So even like the Comcast of the world should be doing this. I think the Amazons of the world will be doing this. So I think the ultimate winners will be the platform players that already have the consumers. But I think these are big transactions because I think the gaming companies and the interactive entertainment companies are already sizable in nature. You saw the Unity IPO price and trade very, very well. Roblox's IPO will happen in you know obviously 2021 early on and I think these are going to be massive companies and platforms.
1: So it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibilities for a big tech company to make an ambitious move into the interactive entertainment area. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, that's
2: a fair move. I think, look, we've talked about them making a move into video, making a move into audio, making a move into gaming. All that I think will happen, but I think that's too soon to say it's going to happen right now. I think in the meantime, big tech is going to be focusing on its own direct-to-consumer growth, and its own competition on their existing products and development in existing marketplaces. And there's plenty of room to run there. It's not easy to establish platforms of that scale. I think there's a lot of activity in building up these other ecosystems along the way. And ultimately, there's opportunities for consolidation. But I think there's a lot more growth and in market consolidation before we get to that point. Obviously, always room for one-offs.
1: Another area that's been under the spotlight during this pandemic has been connectivity. It is clearly critical and essential, and and now we have 5G that's on on the way to further enhance the capacity and speeds. And the carriers are also very actively promoting Apple's new 5G-enabled iPhone into the holiday season. But at the end of the day, what is your view about the wireless operators being able to sustainably generate incremental ARPU off of the 5G speeds – or will this end up just being another investment cycle that benefits those that are offering the new latency services over the networks? I mean, who ends up winning?
2: Yeah, well, when I think when you're a carrier that is offering capacity or connectivity, then the number one important thing is speed, followed closely by price. So effectively, what people want, because... We're all using more and more services. We just talked about you know, gaming and other things. We want more speed and more capacity. And if anything, this last 12 months has shown us that that's one thing we cannot sacrifice. Connectivity. No outages. We need more video, more symmetrical data, and more connected devices, and we, we need more speed. So people will pay a lot for speed, in my mind, and for capacity. If a carrier can prove that they're going to get more speed and more reliability, they can raise prices. That then becomes a function of competition. If multiple providers can offer the same speed, then price becomes less of a uh, differentiator or more of a differentiator in terms of being the low price service wins. And then you really need services and applications. And that's where I think Verizon has been innovative from a 5G perspective by doing these sports partnerships, for example, which ultimately could lead to things like sports betting. And I think that's really where their Yahoo business could show some life again, more in finance, with you know trading and other things. To really own the customer and have pricing power, you need to have a richness of content beyond the connectivity. The cable operators have always done that because they've always offered speed on broadband and high capacity, but they've also had to offer video services and other forms of connectivity and content. When you decouple that, then it becomes a game of tools and applications and just about broadband. And then that has a runway to it and an end game potentially.
1: Will 5G create any meaningful competition for cable as a home broadband replacement anytime soon?
2: I think in some ways they're competitive. in some ways they're complementary. I mean I think you know you still need the broadband infrastructure of the cable operators to work with Verizon. In fact, I think they have a partnership with Charter and Verizon as an example, and they're working together. I don't really see 5G as a video replacement if you're talking about cable from a video perspective. But I think from a broadband perspective, they're complementary. I think Verizon's done a very good job of creating partnerships, with Disney being probably the most notable one with Disney+. Plus. I think that they'll be more complementary. I don't see 5G as a video alternative
1: anytime soon. Right. So switching gears to e-commerce, during this pandemic, you know, we've seen a rapid acceleration of business for digital-first, direct-to-consumer platforms, focus on specific market segments investors used to believe that nobody could compete with Amazon's scale, but many digital vertical brands have proven their strong competitive positioning. You specifically called out luxury fashion as an opportunity in one vertical that could continue to to see rapid e-commerce adoption. But this has historically been a sector where consumers want to be able to touch and feel, and the experience was also part of the allure, like the in-store experience. So why do you believe that consumers for luxury goods won't just revert back to the old ways post the pandemic world?
2: Yeah. Maybe you want to go touch and feel clothing before you buy it, but I think a lot of people are getting more comfortable with having greater access and maybe having just, you know, pop-up stores and other things that are more uh, nimble and adaptable, but not necessarily permanent and structural. And I think luxury is getting on board with that in a big way. And with that risk, some pricing dynamics, but benefiting the consumer. But I think what's really happening is the platform players, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or others, obviously we talked about Amazon, are providing a forum for brands to sell their goods in a much more easy and impulsive way. That's where access to brands will create revenue streams that will be, um, I think, creating more competition around retail. And I think that will be... um, Competitive in these years and probably accelerating the retail to e-commerce conversion ratios which at an accelerating pace this year.
1: Right. I think yes.
2: everyone's going to have their own retail store without having to own the infrastructure. Uh,
1: this feeds into social commerce. It really does seem yeah. like it's at an inflection point at this stage. Yeah,
2: which is what really Walmart TikTok deals all about. And I think the social commerce ecosystem is uh, really an evolution of social into commerce to survive. Because I think otherwise, social alone is probably had its day.
1: Right. So. Liontree's roots started in cable media, but over the years, the firm has expanded into adjacencies. We talked about video gaming as one of them, software, sports, and sports tech. And tech enablement is driving transformation across many sectors, fintech, edtech, food tech, health and wellness, travel, all of which you cited. Could you talk about some of the merchant banking investments that we've made in these areas that you're most excited about looking forward?
2: Well, let me just back up for a second because everyone wonders, what is a merchant bank? I mean, we, uh, we talk about it. Let me describe what we do effectively because what is Lion's and why are we different from just a bank? The answer to that question is we are advising companies and individuals in some cases in facilitating their objectives, in some cases, their dreams, their hopes, what they want to accomplish, their business models, their ideas. And sometimes that takes the form of mergers and acquisitions. Sometimes it takes the form of raising capital. Sometimes it takes the form of going public. Sometimes it takes the form of finding solutions for debt and capital structure, helping businesses in transition, change from one shareholder base or capital structure to another. All very exciting things, but we do it in the context of a industry set that we call the creative industries and the digital economy. When you really double-click on that, it's media companies, as you said, cable companies, telecoms companies, towers companies, technology companies. Those are all kind of defined verticals. The nice thing about what we do is that the industry that we look at is always evolving. There's innovation built into our clients. There's innovation built into the industry. So we're very fortunate that we're attached to an industry that is in motion. We're not attached to an industry that's static. So therefore, we have to be in motion. Therefore, we have to be learning. So we put a lot of work in place in the firm of our own internal research, our own internal curiosity, our own learnings and thematics, where things are going. And it happens to be that if we can predict the future of where things are going and therefore advise accordingly, then we can not only help with the transactions, but sometimes we can also make investments. Because once you know the future... You could invest in the outcome. If I told you what the future is going to look like in a month, a year, or two years, you could surely make a lot of money on that by investing in those trends. It could be public market trends or it could be private trends. Obviously, the private ones have more risk because it's less liquid. But in these day and age, with so many SPACs out there and ways of going public, there'll be companies that'll go public a lot easier and faster and a lot of ways to get money these days. So we try to match up our expertise in capital and ways to get capital with industry thematics and executing mergers and advice in all ways just to get to the rightful outcomes for everybody. And it's a nice platform to have. I'm really grateful that we have this platform. But in order for us to succeed, we have to be evolving and growing with the industry set. And that, frankly, what makes it interesting. If we were doing the same thing and looking at the same industries every year, it would be getting into some level of routine I never feel that we're in a routine. I never am bored. I never have one day like the other one. I never have one year like the last one. Every year-end letter, I think, hopefully, is different than the last one and says different things. But this last year's letter is really a framework for coverage, how Liontree looks at the industry in all of its innovation and in all of its growth in all of its tentacles, and not only in the core of what we do in terms of what dictates the market caps of today, and what dictates the established players today and what they need to grapple with to be scale players in motion, but also where the innovation comes for the future established companies, the disruptors. And we are a disruptor. Liontree is a relatively young company. We're approaching you know nine years old, and we have a long way to go. And I always say, back to our metaphor of what we're all about here is I'm much more loyal to the future of Liontree than the Past of Lion Tree, certainly more loyal to the future of Lion Tree than the present of Lion Tree, because that governs how we treat people, how we deliver for people, how we do deals, how we do the right deals, how the deals that we do perform after we finished. Otherwise, we won't be given another chance. And all we want is to endure. The end of the letter is about this Motri shop in Japan that has endured for generations. I like that example. It's about humility. It's about the long tail, the long term. To do that, we have to always be learning and we have to have very trusting relationships and a community of people that we work with out there that we view as partners and they view us as partners. They're in control. We uh, would love to invest alongside of them, behind them, and advise them along the way.
1: As usual, you have an extensive book recommendation list. Uh, it was hard to choose, but I picked uh, Elizabeth the I, CEO, I'm going to read that over the holidays. It sounded like an interesting read on leadership and from a unique perspective and unique time.
2: You will find similarities with yourself given how entrepreneurial you are as a leader.
1: Oh, now I'm very curious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. What's next on your book list, may I ask?
2: Well, I've kind of had enough leisure time. I think I'm ready to go to a, a concert, <laughs> <laughs> go to a movie premiere, really get out and see some people in some gatherings and some speakeasies and safe environments as we migrate through 2021. But I'm all into gatherings now. I talked about in last year's letter about being a decade akin to the 1970s, which is really a decade of creativity and excitement and especially the grittiness of New York. And now I talk about, like everyone else, the 20s being now more like the 20s, just because we need some gatherings and some speakeasies and overcoming prohibition and really getting together and doing the things that were forbidden in the past. One book that's on my shelf that I really do want to read that I haven't gotten to and it is not on my list, is the four agreements. That is next for me to crack open uh, between now and my uh, ability to get out to public spaces again.
1: Fantastic. That's a classic. (laughs) So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask one last question to end on a positive note. On a personal level, what is one thing that you're grateful for that has arisen as a direct result of the crisis? I mean, for me, going on walks with my kids... Walking around the neighborhood, that's something that I never did before. That is cherished time for me now, and I hope that persists. So what would you say stands out for you?
2: There's so many things that I feel like the pandemic has taught me, but really it's to cherish the community that I have, both family and friends and clients. There wasn't a lot of networking going on last year. You weren't meeting a lot of new people. That usually drives you, the meeting of the new but when you exist with what you're familiar with, then you have to be comfortable with it. And you really have to find warmth in it. And I found that to be incredibly uh, rewarding and, and heartening, both in the outside world, but also inside the firm. Like I thought it was really nice that we everyone came together much more often than I didn't look at these as kind of meetings as much as chances to gather and to talk and to communicate. And I found that to be really exciting. We did some town halls, virtual town halls, I call them, where we shared best practices with four or five people at a time, CEOs. And I never told the CEOs who else would be on the Zoom. And they just trusted me and they popped on. And it was kind of like the Brady Bunch. They would look at these different boxes and they say, oh, look who's coming on. And I wasn't keep it to an hour. And it was effectively everyone talking about what's most important to them, how they're dealing with their companies, how they're dealing with their health, how they're dealing with each other any questions they had. And I felt so grateful to be like a convener around that. That was probably one of the most exciting things I did during the pandemic. And I had the same kind of feeling for inside the firm's gathering. So I'd like to continue those things in person throughout 2021 where you just bring people together in smaller groups and you just sit around the floor, sit around the table and get comfortable and talk about uh, what's meaningful to you. At the end of the day, it's a personal journey. Right.
1: I think that's a great idea. With that, I thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated our discussion and look forward to the journey ahead for us and the firm in
0: 2021.
2: Thanks, Leslie. I can't wait. Here we go.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening today. As always, we hope you learned something new. For more shows on the cutting edge of business, technology, and media, and to subscribe to our Take a Break newsletter, be sure to check out the link in our show notes. If you like what you heard today, feel free to share the show with a friend or even leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll see you soon. Happy 2021.